We begin today with economist Peter Schiff on the news yesterday that inflation has hit 8.5 percent last month. That's the fastest 12-month pace since 1981, though Peter says it's worse than they're disclosing. The Biden administration is trying to blame it on external forces, calling this Putin's price hike, which no one believes. So let's talk about Putin's price hike, because poor Joe Biden, you know, the, the, the savior of our economy, things were going along just perfectly and swimmingly until Putin started a war in Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even Biden's not bold enough to put it that way. But he is blaming these crazy inflation numbers on Vladimir Putin. And you've been making two interesting points lately. Number one, it's not Putin's price hike. But number two, the inflationary numbers are worse than is actually being revealed. The the number's not really 8.5. It's more like double that. So let's start with point one. Why is it not Putin's price hike that is causing inflation to now be at, I think it's a 41-year high, 8.5%? Well, first of all, we've been dealing with much higher than expected inflation numbers for a long time, all of last year, all of 2021, long before Putin uh, invaded the Ukraine. uh, Prices kept going up month after month, more than expected. And the Fed kept saying, don't worry about it. It's transitory. It'll go away on its own. And in in fact, the Fed was finally forced to reluctantly admit that inflation wasn't transitory. And all this happened before Putin invaded the Ukraine. And and by the way, even if you're going to try to blame some inflation on the invasion, it's more the sanctions that are affecting uh, prices than the invasion itself. You know, not that I'm saying that you know, we should condone the invasion. But, you know, we also have to accept the responsibility that the U.S. is leading the charge on these sanctions. And and it may be the sanctions that have more to do with it uh, than the invasion itself. But I think neither is the culprit. Uh, It's all the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government. It's Congress. It's the Biden administration that has been spending money that it was not collecting in taxes. We were running record budget deficits and the Federal Reserve was monetizing those deficits. We were printing all this money and the government was spending it. We we told people not to go to work, not to be productive, don't help make stuff, don't provide services, but here's a bunch of money to go out and spend. We want you buying stuff even though you're not making stuff. And so we flooded the, the country with money. At the same time, the, the production of goods and services slowed down. And of course, prices went up. It's not a surprise. It's exactly what I would say was saying was going to happen when they first went down uh, this misguided path. And so we're simply reaping the whirlwind of the wind that we sowed. It's too much money chasing too few goods, and they just kept punch, uh, pushing money after money after money into the economy, and then finally found a scapegoat. Vladimir Putin, great. That's going to involve oil and gas shortages, and we can blame everything on him. No one's buying it. But And by the way, about- Reg- Megan, the, the amount, the sheer volume of goods coming into the United States is at an all-time record high. So we've never had so much stuff coming into the country as we have right now. The problem is we printed even more money. And that's why everybody is, you know, chasing all this stuff. Uh, So the the problem isn't a lack of stuff. It's a surplus of money Mm, because the government can can print money, but they can't print stuff. So if they keep printing money, clearly prices have to go up because there's nothing to buy with the money they print. Mm -hmm. And why is it worse than 8.5? Well, when the government calculates the official CPI, there is a methodology that they use and they purport to try to uh, take into account 
substitution or improvements in quality to adjust the price. And, and so the prices that are actually coming out of the CPI are not the prices that go in. There's a lot of manipulation going on to arrive at that number. And when the government changed the CPI in the 1990s, they specifically said that they thought the CPI you know, in the 80s and 70s was flawed because they thought that because they didn't account for substitution and wait, wait, let me just stop you. Let me just stop you and just dumb it down a little bit. OK, just dumb it down. So CPI is consumer price index. And we look at this to see how much certain goods. I mean, people like me look at it to see how much has, you know, have groceries gone up. Um, you know, this March over last March or this month over the month before, uh, how much, what about, you know, all consumer goods that we buy basically. Right. So let me give right? you an example. So take groceries. Yep. Let's say the price of broccoli goes way up. They decide, well, consumers didn't buy broccoli because it was so expensive. Let's take it out and let's stick Brussels sprouts in there because Brussels sprouts didn't go up as much. Mm. And then they say, oh, steak prices really went up. Okay, let's say people bought chicken instead of steak. And so we'll take out the steak and we'll assume they bought chicken. They make all these adjustments. The well, basket is not fixed. Oh, yes, that's, that's correct. Okay, but I got before it. they fixed it, right, in the 1990s, the CPI represented a fixed basket of goods. So all they did is look at the price of goods and then, and then look at how much the price changed. And if we were measuring prices today, the way we measured them in the 80s and the 70s, because we want to go back and say, oh, this is the worst inflation since 1981. Well, if we measured inflation today using the same CPI that they used in 1981, that's where we'd probably be at about 17%, not 8.5%. Mm. So this is the worst inflation in the history of the country if we measure it accurately. But the government doesn't want to be honest about inflation. It lies about inflation the way it lies about everything. Well, one of the other stories we're starting to see now uh, from the media is this is peak. Don't worry. This is like the good news is we've peaked. And of course, I don't know anything about money, but I do know that I was told inflation was transitory and not to worry. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse. So when they tell me it's peak, I don't believe them. Um, should I believe them? No. I mean, first of all, they said it peaked a while ago. And so we're higher than where it was when it supposedly peaked. But it's as peaked as it was transitory. And there's no reason to believe that it's peaked. Think about where interest rates are. Even though the Fed is talking about raising them, they're still at 25 basis points, one quarter of 1%. The last time inflation was this high in 1981, interest rates were at 20%. So wow. we're, we're not even close to 1%, let alone 20%. So inflation is not coming to an end like it was in 1981. It's just getting started. This is like 1971, not like 1981. We have a long way to go. We're not even close to the peak of inflation. So what about the Fed and what it's, I mean, it's had interest rates so low. It's made borrowing money so easy for so long. Um, and all that money's flowing in the economy as a result. Now they're starting to inch up the interest rates. Is it enough? Is it is it going to be enough soon? Like, I mean, how high should it go and should it go high at all? Well, the interest rate should be above the inflation rate. So even if you believe <laughs> the real the one or the fake one, well, the real one. But if even the fake one is we can't go above eight and a half. People aren't lending money 
to lose on purpose. You have to have a real return that exceeds the rate of inflation. And, you know, we're not even close to that. But the reason that the Fed is not raising rates significantly to fight inflation is because it can't do it because we all have so much debt. But the reason we have so much debt is because the Fed could never raise rates in the past, because every time they tried, the economy would go into recession, the markets would tank, and then it'd have to go right back down to zero and do a bunch more quantitative easing. So the economy gets more and more addicted to cheap money every time we get a bigger dose. And now they're claiming that we can go cold turkey on the cheap money and and nothing's going to happen. I mean, the economy has never been more vulnerable to a rise in interest rates than it is right now. And we've never had more inflation than we do right now. So higher interest rates have never been more necessary than they are right now. But we can't get them without collapsing the economy. So we won't get them. We'll have massive inflation instead, which will do even more damage to the economy than a collapse. Oh, my gosh, because, you know, people have referenced back in the Reagan years when we faced high inflation. And what did they do? Well, they did raise interest rates a lot and it was painful, but it helped. But you don't see that as a realistic option in front of us, or at least not one anyone's going to take. No. And not only do they have to raise interest rates, they have to dramatically reduce the money supply. They have to reverse all this quantitative easing. They have a nine trillion dollar balance sheet. Can I just inter- can I, let me just interject again. I know I'm supposed to know what quantitative, quantitative easing is, but I, I don't really. Can you explain that just quickly? Yeah, well, it's very confusing because the whole term is a lie. But what quantitative easing really is, is debt monetization. That's when a central bank, the Federal Reserve, prints up money and buys government bonds. And so they, they put new money into circulation. They are inflating the money supply. That is the very essence of inflation. Whenever the central bank says we're doing quantitative easing, what you should actually think they're saying is we are causing inflation. And that is what they did. And the consequence of that is that we're all paying higher prices. But if they want to get rid of the inflation, they have to shrink that money supply. So they have to do the opposite of quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. They've got to sell U.S. government bonds and then take the money they get and destroy it so that the money supply goes down. Mm. The problem is, who is going to buy all these government bonds? Because up until recently, the Federal Reserve was the biggest customer of the United States government because the Federal Reserve was the biggest buyer of treasuries helping to finance the deficit. Well, if the Fed goes from being the Treasury's biggest customer to their biggest competitor, if the Federal Reserve is competing with the government selling treasuries into the market, Who is going to buy all these treasuries and where is the money going to come from? The answer is no one's going to buy them. The price has to collapse. That's why interest rates are rising every single day. We just hit 2.9% today on a 30-year, 2.8% on a 10-year. These are the highest rates have been since COVID. But they're going up every day because nobody wants to buy treasuries. So every day, more and more treasuries get sold. Rates are going to keep going up until eventually the markets crash and then the Fed is forced to uh, pivot on its on its stance and, and go back to, uh, you know, oh, we can't hike rates, so we can't shrink our balance sheet. And that's when inflation can really kick into a higher gear. As bad as okay. it is now, it's going to get much worse. OK, so that's that's what I'm looking for, the prediction. So they can't fix it. The quantitative quantitative easing can't really be effectively undone. They're not willing to raise interest rates above one point above eight point five or one point above above what it really is, which is more like 17, right, is to 18 percent. Um, so they're not going to do what's necessary to sort of do what yeah, happened well, under Reagan. Because remember, 
if the Fed is going to do quantitative tightening and sell treasury bonds, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, is going to have to dramatically reduce government spending, not just reduce the rate of increase, but actually spend less than they did in the past and actually spend a lot less. The budget deficit is projected to be two and a half trillion. Now, it's probably going to be over three trillion if they're projecting two and a half. But how are they going to sell two and a half trillion worth of treasuries when the Federal Reserve is also selling hundreds of billions worth of treasuries during the same year? They can't do it. So the federal government is going to have to dramatically cut spending so that it doesn't have to borrow so much money or they have to have a massive tax hike on the middle class right now, effective immediately, maybe double income taxes on the middle class, which I mean, clearly they're not going to do. They're not going to cut spending either because they'd have to cut Social Security, Medicare, you know, all the entitlements. I mean, they're just expanding Obamacare. We're broke. The Fed is raising rates. And these idiots just voted to spend even more money uh, on Obamacare, and we can't even afford the money we're already spending. So it's never going to happen. They're just going to keep on printing until they destroy the value of the dollar completely. And as I said, prices are going through the roof. Uh, they have just started. They've only just started going up, and they're going much, much higher. Mm. So what, how does that end? I mean, does that end in a massive recession? What, where does that take us and when? Well, it ends, I think, in an inflationary depression. I mean, it could end in hyperinflation where the money has no value whatsoever and you can't buy anything. No matter how many millions you have, there's nothing that you could buy because no one will sell you something. But if we're going to stop that from happening, then we're going to have to suffer a severe collapse, uh, a financial crisis, you know, far greater than anything that we had in 2008. And Mm -hmm. nobody gets a bailout from anything. No, no banks get bailed out. They have to fail. And in fact, when they fail, the depositors are going to lose their money because there's no FDIC money either, because that would have had to come from the Fed. So depositors lose their money. Companies go out of business. Investors get wiped out. Jobs get destroyed. Um, you know, it's going to be a, a real mess in the end. That's why they're waiting so long and kicking the can down the road for as many years as they have, because the consequences are so horrible. Nobody wants to face them. But every time we kick that can down the road, we make those we make those horrible consequences much worse. Mm-hmm. So since we've been doing it for so long, you can only imagine just how horrific things are going to be in order to avoid hyperinflation, which would be even more catastrophic. All right. So let's say we elect uh, Peter Schiff as our next president in 2024. What's the first thing you do? <laughs> Demand a recount. No, um, <laughs> No, well, they're, they're, they're not going to, uh, to elect me, obviously. But mm-hmm. if somehow I could become the president of the United States, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things I would do. But in the short run, we would have to still go through uh, some pain. I mean, there is no quick fix. But what I would do is enable the economy to fix itself over the long run. Because the problem with the economy is government and, and the Federal Reserve. We need a free market economy not a government planned economy. We need the government to dramatically reduce its size and its cost so we can return those resources to the private sector. We need to dramatically deregulate the economy uh, so that the free market can regulate it, uh, not a bunch of bureaucrats. Uh, and we need to re- you know, return to sound money, not money that can just be created out of thin air the that gold has standard? no value. So if we, huh? The gold standard? 
Yes, yes, that's the standard that the founding fathers put us on. They did it for a reason. It worked very well uh, for as long as we followed it. So we just need to go back to it. Uh, and, 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 you know, I'd like to get rid of the income tax, the federal income tax, the corporate income tax, Social Security tax, you know, get, get, make government much smaller. I mean, I think the only thing the federal government should do is national defense, and it still spends too much money on defense. I think uh, the rest of it should be covered by the states, although most of it, you know, shouldn't be covered at all. It should be taken care of in the free market. But, you know, America could be a very prosperous nation again uh, if, we, if, if we repeat what made us so rich in the first place. But right now we're broke. We just don't know it yet. We're living off of borrowed money. We are the world's biggest debtor nation. Uh, we owe more money than all the other nations combined. We're running uh, enormous trade deficits with every nation on the face of the earth. So our economy is completely uh, incapable of producing the goods that we consume. Uh, we borrow from the rest of the world because we don't have our own savings. We're basically being supported uh, by the rest of the world. Uh, the world has to bear the cost of subsidizing the U.S. economy. And that's going to come to an end. And if we're going to stand on our own two feet, if we're going to be productive again, then we're going to have to return to the limited government, uh, maximum economic freedom type economy that we had in the past. Mm. You've got my vote. Okay, we'll do it. There's so much more to go over. Uh, you heard Peter mention it a minute ago, but the sanctions that we've we passed on Russia, right, that Joe Biden put in place and the Europe put in, put in place, why that may be doing more harm to us than to Vladimir Putin. We'll get into that. Plus, I want to ask about what to expect in the housing market. A lot of people worried about that. Uh, we're going to pick it up there in one minute. The sanctions on Russia. Are they doing what we want them to do financially to Russia? And what are they doing to us? Well, think about it logically. So what are we doing with the sanctions? So Biden and other leaders are telling Americans, hey, Russia's got gasoline that you need and food that you need, but you can't buy it from them anymore. We're not going to allow you to buy these goods from Russia. So you got to buy the goods someplace else. Well, now we have to pay more because now there's all this demand from, you know, the other sellers. They have much higher prices now because we've eliminated all the supply that was coming from Russia. So Americans end up paying a lot more for those goods uh, that the U.S. government won't let us buy from Russia. But now think about it from Russia's perspective. Russia still has all their oil. They still have all their food that's now way more valuable because we've caused the price to go up. And now they're able to sell either illegally on black markets or to other nations that are still trading with Russia. They're actually still able to sell their oil and their food. They just get a higher price for it than they were before. So Russia may be winning from the sanctions and it's Americans, it's Europeans who are losing. So I, I, I think that like most things the government does, it typically backfires. Like when the government creates an anti-poverty program, you end up with more poverty, not less. And so by sanctioning Russia, we're probably going to end up helping Russia and hurting ourselves, especially by highlighting to the world the dangers of using the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. And so we may have just hastened the demise of the dollar as the reserve currency, which means we accelerate the collapse of our own economy. Mm. So what? So basically, it wasn't going to work the sanctions unless we got everybody to join on board. You have to make sure India's on board. You have to make sure China's on board. You have to make sure that all these Middle Eastern nations are on board. Otherwise, they don't work so well. But, but even if they're all on board, 
there can still be people that circumvent. Because let's say because of the sanctions, um, a product that Russia was selling went from $1 to $3. And so now the market is $3 and it's really expensive. And now under the table, you know, illegally, Russia says, hey, you know, we'll sell you this stuff for $2, right? You can get it for a big discount to the $3. There are going to be people who will illegally buy that stuff because they're saving so much money paying $2. But at $2, Russia still gets double what they were getting before the sanctions. So Russia wins, you know, and everybody else loses as a result of those sanctions. So, you know, that, that's how I think this ultimately plays out. There was a report that the ruble's worth more now than it, it it was at the beginning of this war. I've I've heard some people throw some cold water on that. What do you make of that? No, no, that's not a report. That's a fact. I mean, I haven't checked the exchange rate this morning, but the last time I looked, the ruble was higher than it was when the war began and the sanctions were announced. Now, initially, there was about a 40 percent decline in the ruble. And President Biden was bragging about how much value the ruble lost. Well, the ruble has recovered all of that lost value and then some. Now, the ruble is still a lot lower than it was a year ago. So it's not like we have a strong ruble, but it has strengthened recently. And I believe that that is a trend that's going to continue. And right now, the dollar has been very strong against a lot of other currencies, in particular, the euro. It's not wasn't just a ruble. But I think that dollar strength is eventually uh, going to reverse as well. I think the dollar is going to come under a lot of pressure when the markets realize that the Fed is bluffing about its ability to fight inflation uh, and that when the markets you know, figure that out, uh, and, and the Fed is ultimately for, forced to reverse because of the weakness in the economy and the markets, I think the dollar is going to tank across the board, including against the, the ruble. And now that Putin has kind of fixed how much gold uh, the central bank of Russia is willing to buy priced in rubles, if we see a very weak dollar in terms of rubles, that will put a lot of upward pressure on the price of gold because a lot of Russian banks will be buying gold that they can turn around and sell to the uh, Russian government at a profit. And the strength in gold will also accelerate the decline of the dollar and, and feed the whole process. I know you're big on buying gold uh, and silver as well, and that you have a firm that helps people do that. But I, I've heard you say it for a long time that that, you know, gold is a good investment. Um, what about this notion of the, of the dollar no longer being the, the world's reserve currency? Can you explain what does that yeah. mean and how does that affect mm -hmm. regular people? Yeah, well, first of all, I look at gold as money, as a store of value, not as an investment per se, like you invest in stocks or real estate. You hold on to gold uh, to preserve value because it doesn't throw off a return like stocks Right. Uh, or, or or real estate do. What what was the question you asked though? I just what about the dollar as as the world's oh, yeah. reserve? Sorry. Yeah. Like, what, is it, what, so, what does that mean? And what does it mean to the regular Joe watching this program if, if that is no longer the case? Yeah, people don't really understand the degree to which the American economy is dependent on the dollar and its uh, role as the reserve currency. You've often heard the U.S. economy described as a service sector economy, right? We're we're all about services. Well, where do we get all the stuff then? Because we certainly consume a lot of stuff. Americans are, you know, incredible shoppers. I mean, we have an insatiable <laughs> appetite one. to buy stuff, right? <laughs> so, but if we have a service sector economy, where's all this stuff coming from that we're buying? Well, it's coming from China and other countries. Well, how do we pay for it? We don't. We just print money. 
You see, under a normal economy, if we didn't have the reserve currency, we would either have to produce stuff for ourselves or produce stuff for our trading partners to trade with them for the stuff they produce. But we don't have to produce anything. We just print money. And the rest of the world takes the money we print for the stuff they make. And so we have a much higher standard of living because we get to consume all this stuff that we didn't have to produce. So we didn't really pay for it. But when the dollar loses its status, then the rest of the world isn't going to want dollars anymore. They're going to want stuff. And so if we want their stuff, we're going to have to make some stuff of our own to give them. And we can't do it because we don't have the factories. We don't have the savings to create the factories. We don't have the supply chains. We don't have the skilled labor. We don't have anything that a manufacturing economy needs because we're no longer a manufacturing economy. I mean, we manufacture a little, but not nearly enough to satisfy our demand. So what would have to happen if the dollar was no longer the reserve currency is American spending would implode. Consumption would collapse because we'd have nothing to buy. And so our entire GDP would implode. We'd have a massive recession because Americans wouldn't be buying anything because we couldn't afford anything. And all the shelves would be empty because foreigners wouldn't be sending us the stuff that they produce. And we don't have the capacity to produce it for ourselves. What is the likelihood that that could happen? Oh, 100 percent. The, 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 the only the, the only question is when, because the only way to avoid that would be for the U.S. government to act fiscally responsible. But that's never going to happen. In fact, as long as the dollar is the reserve currency, we have no incentive to be fiscally responsible. So that's the, the problem here. We're going to keep on doing this until there's a crash, because the only thing that will stop it is a crash, because we won't voluntarily you know, face the music because, you know, it's it's so politically damaging to the people in power to do that. So and, and I also think that a lot of people in, in the U.S., including at the Fed, just take for granted the dollar's reserve currency status. I mean, they don't think that we could ever jeopardize it, that no matter how much money we print, no matter how much our deficits are, the rest of the world is just going to go along for the ride. And I think they believe that because they've gone along so far. And, you know, it's we've gotten away with it this long. And so the belief is we'll get away with it indefinitely. And I think that hubris is, is going to have a big price because that's not going to be the case. And I also think that um, the Fed and the U.S. government have underestimated the degree to which that reserve currency status is so, you know, integral mm -hmm. to the entire bubble economy that we have, our whole service sector economy. That's the linchpin. You pull that out. And everything implodes. You, you're talking about manufacturing and how we don't do it anymore. And this is one of the reasons why Trump got elected, why Rick Santorum's book sold well. Um, it wasn't always thus in our country. So what happened, right? I mean, it was was it was it NAFTA? Like what 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 brought us from a country that manufactured its own goods with pride to a country that buys everything from China? Yeah, well, it was it was big government. It was taxes and regulations that made the U.S. uncompetitive relative to the rest of the world. And then it was going off the gold standard and going on a dollar standard where once the dollar was the reserve currency, the rest of the world needed dollars. And how did they get dollars? Well, they sold stuff to Americans. And so we basically outsourced our entire economy. And in the short run, we benefited because the cost of production was lower overseas uh, than it was in the U.S. 
especially because American companies had to deal with high regulations, high taxes, uh, labor unions, uh, all sorts of other things that ran up the cost of production that foreigners didn't have. And of course, you know, a lot of the regulation, the labor laws, the environmental laws, I mean, these other countries didn't have to deal with that. And so they didn't have to bake the cost of complying with those regulations into their, their labor call, into their mm-hmm. price of their goods. And the wages were already, you know, much, much lower in the other countries. So Americans got a good deal. We traded our jobs for stuff and we did that for decades. But, you know, we can't do it anymore because we've now have so much debt and wages around the world have increased to the point where there's not a big arbitrage left anymore between labor costs outside the U.S. and labor costs inside the United States. Um, and, and, and foreigners don't want to you know, play this game anymore. They have too many dollars. Uh, they have so, too many U.S. treasuries. And we're making that apparent uh, by you know, flexing our muscles with these sanctions. Uh, so uh, you know, I think that we've reached the end of the road here on this game. And you know, when we experience... The, the, the true consequences of what's happened, because, you know, we've been living on credit cards and borrowed money and imported goods, and we don't realize how drastically things are going to change for the worse when we can't rely on those things anymore. Those lifelines are going to be gone. So compare us right now to China, because they've taken a very different tact. And I, I've heard you say the 20, 20th century was ours and the 21st is theirs. Yeah, and it's not that China is doing everything perfectly, far from it. And I don't think that the Chinese economy is anywhere near what our economy was, let's say, in the 19th century and early 20th century. We are much freer, or we were much freer back then than China is now. But unfortunately, in many ways, China is freer today than we are now, and that is the problem. And I'm talking about economic freedom, not necessarily political freedom, although I think we may be losing that now, too. Uh, but, um, uh, China is positioned itself in much better because they have a far more productive workforce than America. You don't have armies of people dependent on government. You don't have people collecting social security and, and welfare. Uh, people are saving in China. They, they save a very substantial percent of what they produce, uh, and they produce a lot. I mean, just go walk down the aisles of a Walmart and, and, and take a look at where everything is made. I mean, these are very productive people. Uh, they have the, the equipment, the capital, uh, industrial capacity to produce. And that's what's important. You know, all we have is people that want to buy. But what good is you know, wanting to buy something if you don't make anything? I'd rather have the factories and the ability to make stuff. Because if you can make stuff, you can consume it. You can't consume what you don't make. So China actually is holding the cards, not America. I think they've built a far more viable economy uh, than the one that we have. We have a bubble economy. And I think when the dollar crashes, the Chinese currency is going to rise dramatically. And as Americans see their standard of living collapse, the Chinese are going to see their standard of living surge. Because what's going to happen is all those goods that the Chinese used to make and send to America, they're not going to send them to America anymore. They're still going to make them. So what are they going to do with them? They're going to consume them themselves and their lives will be a lot better when they have their stuff instead of our paper. And our lives are going to be a lot worse when we don't have their stuff and all we have is our paper. 
How would you hedge against that? I mean, for individuals out there feeling scared now as a result of this discussion, what should they do? I mean, we can't control. They, I mean, yes, elect the right leaders. But I know you say no, no leaders are good. Politicians are not the answer. So what should yeah. individuals do? Well, you mentioned yourself. I mean, Donald Trump campaigned on making America great again by revitalizing our manufacturing. And none of that happened. The trade deficits were higher when Trump left office than when he came in even if you look at the trade deficit before COVID. So we were still continuing to, uh, you know, disintegrate as, as an industrial economy, even during the Trump years. So yes, the politicians aren't going to change it. Doesn't matter who you vote for, but what you do need to do is protect yourself. And that's what I've been doing myself for years. And I've been encouraging all of my clients uh, to do the same thing. You've got to get out of U.S. dollars. You've got to recognize that inflation is a tax. It's the way the government is funding its deficits. The deficits are going to go up, so the tax is going to go up, and there is more there is more reasons now to avoid it. And so I am helping people rearrange their investment portfolios in light of this reality to invest in countries that are not going to have this rapid inflation, but to also own assets, real assets, productive assets that sell products and services that consumers have to buy, not just what they want to buy, uh, because a lot of things they want to buy, they're going to stop buying because the stuff they need to buy is going to be so expensive. So you want to own the companies that sell the stuff that people need to buy and they can raise prices and they're paying uh, their earnings to their shareholders in the form of dividends. So you have to be an old fashioned investor for value and dividend. You got to look towards resources, raw materials, agriculture, energy, uh, mining, uh, but then things like utilities or things, you know, whether it's tobacco or food, uh, you know, things and things that people have to buy and they're going to pay higher prices. Uh, you know, uh, they're not going to they're not going to cut back like on entertainment or a lot of, you know, mm. buying uh, a, a computers or or things like that. Gadgets that, that that are fun, but they don't really need to upgrade to the newest you know phone when their phone they've got will do. They need that money for food. They need it for rent or something like that. So you want to invest in those. But you have to recognize that you need to be outside the U.S. So we're building portfolios of foreign stocks predominantly, but also focusing on some emerging market exposure, commodities exposure, precious metals. Gold and silver will be big winners in a monetary reset where the dollar is no longer the reserve currency because when the dollar is out, gold will be back in. Because before we had the dollar as a reserve, everybody had gold as reserves. We only went off the gold standard to go on the dollar standard. And we only did that originally because the dollar was backed by gold and redeemable in gold. So the world was still on a gold standard until 1971, except it was on the gold standard through the dollar. Well, we defaulted on our commitments to redeem dollars for gold in 71. And so we've been on a fiat standard ever since. But when this experiment comes to an end, the world is simply going to go back to what existed before 1971, which is a gold standard, only it won't be through the dollar. Uh, countries will have their own gold reserves. And obviously, in that environment, the price of gold is going to be much, much higher. So, you know, I would invite your listeners to to reach out to me and talk to me through either my representatives at Europe Pacific Asset Management, Europe Pacific Capital, uh, to help create a brokerage account or a managed account where we can work with you on, on building the types of portfolios. Uh, that will do well, because if you have a standard portfolio of U.S. stocks and bonds, you'll get wiped out in your mm -hmm. bonds. I mean, for sure, bonds are going to be U.S. dollar bonds are going to be a horrible investment. In fact, they're already down more this year than U.S. stocks. But also 
the U.S. stocks that most people own are the ones that are going to go down the most. Those are the overpriced momentum type tech stocks that everybody owns. Those are the ones that were inflated during the bubble. Well, those are the ones that are going to collapse as the air comes out of that bubble. Uh, so you got to get into, uh, you know, a portfolio of value okay. and dividends, okay. not these hyped up momentum stocks, because they're not going to do well in the inflationary environment that we're in. So on that front, you mentioned rent. Where does housing fall? Essential, non-essential? Because everyone's wondering what's going to happen to their home, to the prices of homes available. Is, is real estate a good investment? And what's going to happen to our homes? Yeah, well, first of all, remember, as far as the CPI, the government claims that housing costs are only up about 5% year over year, which is instantly the most that they've claimed, you know, in a while, I think, you know, but the actual increase is more like 15 to 20%. That's part of the fraud of the CPI. They don't use actual rents or actual home prices. They use owner's equivalent rent. Well, nobody pays owner's equivalent rent. They pay real rent and the real rents are going up triple what the government claims. So housing is a much bigger issue and rents than the government admits. But yes, housing is essential. People do need a place to live. But the question is, uh, how big a place and how many people can share uh, one dwelling. So, you know, there is going to be a problem with real estate, certainly in the inner cities or, you know, big cities, urban areas where people, you know, don't have to, you know, go to work anymore. They can work from home. People want more space. They want more land. You know, maybe they want to grow some vegetables on it. I don't know. Uh, but I think so. Real estate is going to be a mixed bag because mortgage rates are going up and that's going to be a big problem. In fact, we're now over 5% which may not seem that high historically, but when you have historically high prices and rates were close to 3% and now they're over 5%, that makes a huge deal. And of course, the construction costs for new homes are going through the roof. So we can't supply new homes into the market because they're too expensive to build. So you're kind of stuck with the inventory that's already there. So that would you know, keep home prices propped up. But what I do think is gonna happen uh, to the rental market is that as inflation really uh, uh, rears up and people are just spending so much money on food and utilities and stuff like that, yeah. they're going to even have to cut back on their rent. And so what might happen is people that live by themselves might take on roommates. People that have homes might start renting out rooms, a spare bedroom, you know, the attic. Uh, families can be sharing, you know, uh, older children, uh, you know, can move back in with their parents or, you know, the elderly can move back in oh, with their I'm grown so children. We're going to get, a, have we're gonna a lot get of that sense of community back that we lost thanks to the iPhone. So there's so many. Yeah, so, Peter, listen, I, I got to run, but I appreciate uh, your insights on it. You've been right about so much. And that is what is so terrifying. <laughs> Peter Schiff, thank you. All the best and come thank back you, soon. Megan.